The Climate Papers, the COP26 Universities Network podcast. Welcome to this episode of the Climate Risk Podcast, produced by the UK University's Climate Network. In this series, we're exploring all aspects of understanding and communicating the fundamentals of climate risk. What is it? What does it mean for public policy, for security, public health and decision making? Today, we're discussing the climate risk and attribution. And to help me understand the relationship between attribution and climate risk, I'm joined by Dr. Nevin Fuchkar, Environmental Change Institute Fellow at the University of Oxford and COP26 Universities Network Fellow. And Professor Liz Bentley, who's the Chief Executive of the Royal Meteorological Society, the UK's learned and professional body for weather and climate. Hello, both, and thanks so much for coming. Hi. Hello. Nevin, your research focuses on prediction, attribution and the impact of extreme events in climate change. Could you maybe start us off, for those of us who are not as aware of the subjects as as you may be, um, by explaining exactly what we mean by attribution, both generally but also specifically in relation to climate change? Uh, Certainly. So attribution of extreme weather and climate events means that we are trying to estimate uh, what is the role of anthropogenic forcing factors in uh, nature and the characteristics of extreme events. So, for example, question would be uh, if the heat event happens or a flood or drought, event attribution aims to answer what is the percentage of uh, anthropogenic factors influencing intensity or probability. For example, the typical answer would be that this heat event has been made 70% times more likely due to the anthropogenic forcing factors, or perhaps more intense, or possibilities also less intense, because uh, extreme events and their changes is something that we typically refer to as the sharp edges of climate change, that actually very complex subject, and there is typically no uh, how's it, uh, binary answer to that. There is always, there is a changes of a certain percent, or there is a sometimes no changes, or maybe there's a possibility that certain extreme event can be even made less likely. But that means perhaps that that would not be a more dangerous. You know, the issue is that, uh, and the different events uh, have a different nature and different probabilities. So for example, from a thermal point of view, heat events, uh, fingerprints of anthropogenic climate change are typically present with a very high probability. However, when we talk about uh, perturbation of hydrological cycle, floods, droughts, it is harder to determine whether the certain flood or certain drought has been influenced, has been changed by climate change. And then there are two perspectives. If you look at the global point of view, global picture, then we can say there is a likely that that has happened. But when you go in the regional information, it can vary substantially from region to region. It can, in a certain, uh, you can have a, a similar drought, similar lack of precipitation in one location, and you can clearly determine that climate change has played the role in making this event more likely. And then you go to another region, another continent, and then you will see no anthropogenic uh, 
fingerprint. So this is, we have to be really region specific. Globally, the picture is clear, but then again, actionable information require regional and local specifications. And that can be a tricky, but then again, that is more reason to be uh, more dedicated to this question and trying to provide actionable information to many uh, local stakeholders as possible. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, as a if you're communicating climate risk, attribution is a really exciting new area of science. It's something that's only been around really in the last kind of five, five to 10 years maximum. And um, certainly when it first came kind of to, to, you know, the information was coming out of these attribution studies, it may take two years for it to be published in a scientific journal. Now, these things have been turned around in just a matter of days. So it's extremely useful. It's a powerful tool for communicating these extreme weather events. And, you know, people ask me kind of, so what is attribution? And I think, you know, the simplest way I could describe it is we take, I guess, two models, one with uh, the climate as it is, with all the greenhouse gases that we as humans have put in the atmosphere, and one that doesn't have any of those humans influenced greenhouse gases and you run the models multiple times and you see what the likelihood is because of those greenhouse gases that you can attribute these extreme weather events compared to if we didn't have anthropogenic greenhouse gases and that's in its simplest form how I would describe it but it's a really exciting area of science and it's something that is you know growing very quickly just in the last few years. Yes it is very emerging area but we have a multi-methods available. So beside running comprehensive and intense models, there are different approaches. We can actually even utilize observations. The longer time record, the better to estimate what is the anthropogenic influence on the in, in a specific uh, extreme event. So we have a, a different approaches, different methods where we can get uh, information about that. Thank you both. That's so helpful. We're talking about human impacts on our climate here and how that can then be linked back to those kind of particularly extreme weather events, as you were saying, Nevin, about, you know, drought, for example. And how do you actually how do you actually unpack the data? Because I can understand if you're running a theoretical model that would give you perhaps a prediction um, and it might show that this this could happen. But but if you've got an actual event and you are trying to track it back in terms of attributing what has happened to human behaviour, human activities, how are you just unpicking the data to do that? You know, it's probably a really stupid question, but I just oh, trying no. to get my head around this. <laughs> well, there, there are different approaches. One approach, uh, which is uh, referred typically as probabilistic event attribution, that was pioneered by Miles Allen at the University of Oxford and Peter Stott at uh, UK Met Office and a few other people, is uh, like Liz was indicating, you run the model under the present day conditions, the larger ensemble, the better. And then you run the model of the same event, but you reduce the forcing factors. For example, you put the greenhouse gases and aerosols to industrial condition. And then you can clearly see if these currently excessive uh, levels of greenhouse gases has change the probability or intensity of this event. However, for example, from observational point of view, you have a long time record of the class of event that you are interested. You can assume certain covariant behavior of your probability distribution and then scale your probability. 
distribution. So that is the one way to do it empirically through observations only. But of course, a prerequisite to do that is to have a long time record. You cannot rely only, let's say, on 20 years of satellite data. You should have uh, it's 120 years of observational station data would be ideal for that of high quality. So there are different approaches to do that. But what we typically, uh, what kind of approach we have in our science is that we trust the attribution result if these different approaches converge to the same answer. Then we have a better understanding of robustness what we have in our results. And the audience will have heard attribution studies being played out in, in the news headlines you know, multiple times at the moment. They may not realise their attribution studies, but, you know, when we hear that certain events, particularly heat events, you know, there's there's a lot of certainty that that event is, is made more likely or more intense or both because of climate change. And there are numbers coming out, you know, 600 times more likely to have the heat wave event that we saw in, in uh, Russia uh, last year. You know, there, there's, there's multiple attribution studies that are being fed in the news story. So as I say, it's a really exciting area of science that's been developing very rapidly over recent years uh, as a way of communicating climate change and climate risk in particular. I guess the downside is what people then tend to do is say every extreme event can be attributed to climate change. And that is now the kind of current challenge that we have is, is to kind of say, well, no, hang on. There, there are lots, sometimes um, some very different causes that may lead to a drought or a flood or even some of the heat events that, you know, some of them may be linked to climate change. But there are other things that are going on that also may have caused that particular event. And sometimes climate change may not have any impact whatsoever but there's there's this kind of you know behavior i guess people say oh well every extreme event must be down to climate change so we need to be careful that we don't kind of over overplay i guess the you know to really really look at the the information that's coming from these attribution studies to really understand you know is it increasing the likelihood and by how much so what sorts of things could have caused an event that weren't climate change related, for example, Liz? So simple weather patterns. I mean, you know, okay. we, we've had droughts, uh, for example, in the past because you get a particular weather pattern, typically high pressure that just dominates for days and weeks on end. Uh, and you don't get any rainfall from them. And they can ha they have happened in the past and they'll happen in the future, irrespective of climate change. And, and sometimes climate change can make them more likely or make them more intense, more severe, more severe drought. Um, and sometimes maybe not. So I think particularly, as, as Nevin said, regarding hydrological cycles, there's usually other things that can play in just simple weather patterns. And so not every event is is inevitably down to to uh, you know climate change. So we just need to be careful how we use it. And that you know, as I say, really exciting, really powerful communication message. But you know, we don't want to overdo it and kind of label everything down to being attributed to climate change. So how do we use this attribution model to help us assess risk? And how do we then kind of share that assessment with with people for whom knowing what the risks are is really important, whether they're policymakers or decision makers of other kinds? Yeah, so in the UK, um, we have the climate change risk assessments that are produced about every five years. So if we go back to the Climate Change Act that was introduced in 2008, this requires the UK government to, to look at regular assessments of the risks of climate change in the UK. And as I say, they produce this assessment report every five years. This is the third one that was produced earlier this year in 2022. And it's based on an independent assessment. It looks at the just UK climate risks and it's provided by the C Climate Change Committee. So it's done independently. 
And it's really interesting. I mean, it lists multiple risks. I mean, the, the current third report that came out in January has 61 risks assessed. So there's a huge number of risks. And it, it goes from different things like soil health uh, through to uh, the supply of food and uh, services, the impact it has on us as humans, the economy, uh, the impact it has on health, the impact it has on overseas. So not just to focus on the UK. And, and I guess one Nice example, if you look at the second assessment that came out five years ago, the international food supply, which was highlighted in the science as being a risk for the UK, that we might see problems on the, the kind of food supply from international countries, wasn't included in the second report. And you know the science has evolved and we've seen recent reports coming out from IPCC with their sixth assessment report. The third report for the risk assessment that came out in January actually has now included that international food supply as being a, a risk that the government has recognised and has, you know, is included in this risk assessment. So it's evolving and the science plays heavily into, you know, what, you know, how, how we uh, assess the likelihood of these risks and, and the, the, um, the action that's needed to mitigate against these risks. So, so the risk assessment is a really important report. And as I say, only comes out every five years and we've just had one uh, produced. And if we include a link alongside this podcast, mm. then people can go and have a closer look at those 61 risks that I mentioned. 61 is quite a frightening list, actually. Yeah. Nevin, I was, I was intrigued when you were saying that the difference between an, a, a global, big, big event and, and those regional ones. And that must be incredibly important when we're talking about helping people manage the impact of climate change. So, Because your work isn't just to say, OK, I'm predicting it. You actually presumably want people to take what you produce and the information that you and colleagues gather and the sorts of work that, that Liz has referred to and do something with it. So how do you balance those two drivers? Because because one of the problems I think that we've talked a lot about on this podcast is that sometimes climate change is just too huge for people to get their heads around. And one of the issues around communication is it's just too much and we don't know where to start. So we end up not doing anything. So what approach do you do to help people take the information you're gathering and do something practical with it or proactive with it? Well, uh, there are different approaches, but I think the most uh, critical element is that you should um, stimulate and empower people that they have the power to do that. They they have capability that they uh, influence matters. It doesn't matter how small it is. You know, I'm trying to teach my son when he leaves the room, he should switch up the light to save electricity. So this is um, minuscule influence, but you know, this is something, you know, I think uh, compounding the small, even sometimes infinitesimal, very, very small contributions can lead to a change. You know, uh, I, I think it's uh, we have to think globally, but we can only act locally. So I would say connect your global understanding, a large scale understanding with what is happening at the local scale and what can you do locally. So it's uh, I, I know there are a couple of things that we can do. We should you know conserve as much as we can and and look for alternatives sources or we can influence our lawmakers or different stakeholders that we can interact even a casual conversation with somebody for five to ten minutes can make a difference sometimes you know i got the good ideas by talking to people when they ask me in the elevator to explain them what i'm doing and then if the two minutes my exposition they ask a question that i didn't anticipate it so it's like a idea is that interacting with many different uh, stakeholders and many different interesting parties is a two-way productive um, venue that actually benefit uh, people who you are interacting and that benefit you. Oh, 
I don't know. It's it's easier to deal with the global scale or large scale, but uh, we actually have a attraction to the small scale because the results become far more interesting as a scientist and far more important. And uh, and fortunately, you know, it's it's not very simple answer. Sometimes yes, there are certain places where actually global warming will not matter. Actually, right now in the, in the observations, there are parts of North Atlantic uh, subpolar gyre that actually are cooling down in long-term trends. So it's like, what? it doesn't mean that global warming doesn't exist. It means that in this specific, specific spot is actually not relevant. And there are a number of interesting factors why it's taking place. Uh, but in a general sense, from society point of view, not that many people live in North Atlantic subpolar gyre. So, I think where people live, there are far more uh, dangerous things happening. <laughs> North Atlantic subpolar gyre. But anyway, this is just a just an example that, that uh, not everything is going in the same direction. But the more places are uh, warming up, and the more places are being exposed to increased intensity and frequency of. Uh, uh, extreme events that have a capability to inflict damage and many different kinds of uh, problems. It is, I think the issue is understanding how providing as accurate as possible local information will enable adaptation and strengthening the resilience. And this is a critical point. This is one of the uh, uh, most actionable aspects of climate research that we can help people today how to prepare benefiting the risk management benefiting preparedness uh, so and that must be local information you cannot provide local managers or local lawmakers with the uh, global scale or or continental scale averages you have to provide as reliable as as accurate as possible information for their benefit directly and i think i think people have kind of almost seen climate change as not an issue for them because it's something that happens somewhere else in the world mm. or it's something that's going to happen in decades to come. And I think attribution studies, the examples that, you know, coming out clearly show that climate change is happening pretty much everywhere uh, and is impacting, you know, significantly on us now. So it's here, it's now, it's on our doorstep. And so it, that's where I think the, the power of attribution is really helping to communicate. So, you know, it brings that reality. And I, and I think, um, you know, one of the one of the areas I think the World Weather Attribution uh, Program is looking at is actually trying to even get more real time attribution studies. As I say, they usually can turn these things around in days, you know, maybe a week or something. But but actually, almost as the the the, the event is happening to to get these, that's possibly an area of where the, the study will go. And and again, Evan, I don't know what you think about the use of the attribution, the science from attribution feeding into kind of legal cases. So you know, the, the possibility that that these could be used, you know, to 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 sue companies fossil fuel companies for example you know that, that's a potential area for the science to to be fed into to to other areas as well there is a growing number of legal cases involving the climate change and uh, extreme events uh, changes of extreme event attribution uh, however i think uh, we haven't seen yet uh, some decisive legal um, precedent that would make a, a template for the future. It's still evolving. People are being uh, suing um, the governments, they're suing oil companies, but but it's it's it takes time to mature this concept. And at this point, it, it, it uh, because it's not just one question. There are many different approaches. It's a multifaceted 
uh, system and what matters to uh, some farmer in Bolivia and what matters to uh, high school uh, children, uh, students in the Netherlands. They have a different aims, but I think this is here. And actually what is another aspect is that this is not just for the physical damages. Actually, mm -hmm. one of the idea is that you can actually induce legislation through these lawsuits. Uh, so, but then again, uh, it, it is very uh, a rapidly evolving uh, front and it matters. There's a big differences from country to country. So it's, it's, it's a actually very complex picture, uh, but people are more aware of that. And uh, frankly, the more is basically what we have seen so far, there will be way, way, way more coming in the near future. I think as well, that the, I mean, again, a UK focus and uh, the the Department of Education is uh, about to launch their sustainability and climate change strategy later this month. I, I think, you know, attribution to help bring climate change to life in the classroom as part of the education curriculum is also another real strength of, of how we can take this forward. So it'll be interesting to see in this strategy launch later this month in the UK, how, how embedded climate change will become in the curriculum and how we kind of prioritise. I mean, the aim for for us at the Royal Met Society is to try and get every every school child leaving um, you know school climate literate, and we have to improve the curriculum to get there. I think to to to, to achieve that, and attribution to me can play a really key part in that. Just providing case studies to bring this to life, as I say, in the classroom. It isn't just children who need to be climate literate. It's it's our very often it's people working in business, and you know we talked a little bit about policymakers and local authorities and things, but but you know people who are working in business who now got to take counts of climate risk, you know, as part of the reporting procedures, part of the legislative requirements, so that need to raise the general level of kind of climate literacy across the country. And then I think the sort of, you know, scenarios you're outlining never really, really help with that, don't they? Because they make it very clear to people as to how, you know, the, the cause and effect um, and understanding that they have responsibilities in the sphere of influence that they're in, whether it's, you know, a banker or a law firm or whatever, there's actually a need for everybody to have this level of literacy and understanding and understand the attribution and the, and the effect of that. Yeah, I see this as, a, as a, some sort of a, a fantastic opportunity to learn something exciting that connects you uh, where you are locally, regionally, with the rest of the world, to understand our own place in the world, how we contribute to the world and how the world interact, uh, impacts us. So uh, this uh, actually, for example, if I can point out, there is something called STEM uh, ambassadors, and there is a STEM climate ambassadors that interact with uh, students in a high school and other levels, but they also interact with many, many different stakeholders. And this is fantastic opportunity for any climate scientist or any scientist and engineer to get involved and simply work on this kind of outreach and educational activities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll add a link to that in the uh, alongside the podcast because again, there's a, a call out there to get as many climate scientists and as Nevin says, any scientists that can kind of bring this to life to to get involved. So uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I think it's 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 a key area and will be a key area, I think, of the Department of Education strategy as well. That we you know we utilise that that source of of enthusiasm and and uh, you know information that's that's out there with our scientists in in, in the UK and abroad. Absolutely, and Nevin, you touched a little bit on adaptation and resilience didn't you so yeah. to using the science and the knowledge and the experience and you know the, the data to change behaviors um and that and so so there's 
many of the conversations about, about climate change feel very negative and slightly depressing. The idea that we might actually be to use this in a positive way for something that can help us both adapt to the impact of climate change, develop greater resilience and possibly then you know, mitigate that impact is actually quite a positive opportunity coming out of some of the work that, that, that you do. Yes, I think it's like we have to rise to a challenge. And, and the most important factor is actually being excited about the challenge. Imagine if you are, you know, a top level athlete and you know that you have a very tough competition and it's a very challenging you are at the Olympics. I don't think that any of the, our top athletes, you know, they are dreading about what they do. They're excited that they're right there. They're excited that they have this challenge in front of them because I see this as a some sort of a phase as our society grows, expands, become technologically more advanced. This is a necessary step that actually we are uh, fortunate to be in position we are. We are actually living in very challenging time, but we are also living in in a ben, an extremely beneficial time. So actually, it's our challenge and responsibility to make them even better and more sustainable in the future. And everything connects with that. It's just like when you when you when you have a, a young uh, child and it's growing, you're putting challenges in front of a child, not to uh, how to say. Uh, hurt it or something like that. It's just preparing it for the life and excitement in front of uh, him or her. So I think it's just our society. Actually, I don't know. Maybe this will sound silly, but you know, I perceive our industrial society as as a you know very young society. You know, uh, before the you know first industrial revolution, we were basically mostly agrarian society and relying on basically mechanical energy, you know, of animals and people. So now we are using these all kinds of sources of energy, dense sources of energy and be utilizing the best possible way. But in order to truly sustain and further develop society, we cannot rely anymore on fossil fuels. They were very useful. They had their part, but now it time is to move on. And these are fantastic challenges to develop our society and develop our technology and develop uh, even philosophically understanding connection of the planet that we live, of nature and human beings, because eventually all of these uh, fossil fuels, finite resources, they're exhaustible, they will be gone. So if we do not transition to something that is basically infinite, there will be you know, very big problems and I don't want to go into details about it, but but the point is they should be seen, uh, perceive this as a challenge, as a fantastic challenge that we are lucky to be facing. And and the idea is that when you have resources, you use them max in maximum possible way to prepare you for something else. They are not the end of the story; they're actually the beginning of the story. So what we now need to do. And especially, for example, since we had working group three a mitigation report coming out, we should perceive that as a fantastic opportunity to reshape our energy production and many different aspects of modern technological society from using finite resources to infinite resources. It's like we are currently using a mortal horse and we know that there will be one day last race for that horse, but we have opportunity to start using immortal horse and renewable sources will not have expiration date. Of course, it's very complicated and more complex. Instead of going from using three or four resources, now you will have to have a portfolio of resources, 10 to 15, maybe 20. So that's very challenging. But that's exciting part. That is actually fun part to 
do it mm-hmm. because that way our society actually evolves and becomes better when you put a challenge from somebody you know it is the worst thing you know i perceive if you want to do this service to somebody if you provide absolutely everything to that person and doesn't provide any challenge to that person so you know it's i i maybe i'm going too much in psychology <laughs> psychology of development of our children <laughs> but i think that's also same for the society these are fantastic opportunities mm-hmm. and challenges that will push our development of society so science engineering but as well as economy and financial services i think basically it is opportunity to vastly, vastly expand our society and basically make us, you know, multi-planet society. Because let's not go far, that far. But I think this is very essential, that this is fantastic opportunity to make uh, incredible advances and actually make some, a lot of money at the same time. Yeah, I, I agree, Nevin. I think, it, you know, it, we, we can, it, it's complex, it's challenging, but there, there'll be secondary benefits from moving in this direction, both to our health, you know, by reducing things like pollution, for example. Um, but but also, as you say, to the economy, you know, there's, 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 there's a, the green economy out there is, is actually going to be, you know, very profitable. And so, you know, much bigger than the current one. Yes. Yeah. So, so it is slightly depressing, isn't it? When we, you know, we see the reaction to potential energy shortages as being a, a, you know, reigniting, if I can use that word, of of fossil fuels. So reopening of oil fields, a reopening of, you know, of of coal-fired power stations. I mean, almost like a kind of throwback response Mm. from some policymakers when actually we should be saying this, as you said, Nevin, this is an opportunity to to take the challenge and to do something new and to exploit, you know, new ways of, of producing energy and of managing our planet in a less harmful way. So so we're not quite, we haven't quite got our climate message across yet, have we, Liz? And we're not, we're there, but we're not quite there. No, that's right. And, and never mentioned the Working Group 3 uh, report that came out um, from uh, the IPCC. And again, you know, we have the next three years to, to see that peak in greenhouse gas emissions. By 2025, we've got to have turned that curve. So we're starting to see a decrease. So it's now, we have to make those changes now. And when we're faced, with these challenges rather than going backwards we need to use that as an opportunity to go forwards and really drive forwards with pace so but but it's very short-termism so you know people clearly do not want the lights to go out tomorrow so they will look for any quick win opportunity and reversing back to coal oil and gas is is you know seen as that quick win opportunity but clearly is you know it's it's not it's not going to help us move forward in the the climate direction that we want to go in no, it's not. And, and that's why, you know, having these conversations that embrace such a wide series of topics is so important, I think, and making this information available to, to you know, to everybody, not just to, to climate scientists. And we've heeded your call for climate scientists. So all the climate scientists and other scientists listening, please get in touch because um, we need you to, to feed into the wider conversation. Thank you both so much. Absolutely fascinating and um, a really, really useful insight, I think, into what is particularly complex subject but but you've certainly made it more understandable for me and I hope for our listeners too so so my thanks to, to Nevin and Liz for, for being part of the podcast and uh, and thank you too for listening you've been listening to the climate risk podcast brought to you by the climate papers uh, do visit the website where all of those resources will be up and available there'll be links and you can follow up and read some of the reports for yourselves and in the meantime thanks for listening and goodbye The Climate Papers is brought to you by Planet Pod Productions and sponsored by the Grantham Institute at Imperial College London.